In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We are in chapter 4 of the book of James, verses 16 and 17. If you guys remember chapter 4, St. James started by telling them, do you know why you have so many problems in the church? Do you know why you're fighting? Do you know why there's a lot of issues? And he told them the biggest issue that you have is the concept that you have a lot of manifestation of pride. You're jealous, you want so many things, but you cannot have, you cannot have enough of it. You're constantly seeking things that you cannot achieve. And he started talking to them a little bit more about humility. And last time we talked a little bit more about humility, and this is the last two verses he's concluding this. He says in verse 16, But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Remember last time I was telling you it was common in the Middle Eastern culture at this time for people to boast. Every time you want to go to war, you have to boast in confidence that I'm going to be victorious. Every time you have a deal, you have to show off that you're, constant, you're, you're confident that you will win this deal. This is somehow showing people that you could carry on, encouraging people, motivating people. And he's telling them, all this boasting is in your arrogance. All boasting is evil. Look, it's really important for us to reflect on where do we draw our confidence from. I was actually today doing a Bible study with a group on the book of Jonah. And one of the things actually I noticed is that the people of Nineveh, when they fasted, they made the animals fast. Why? Because Jonah told them the city will be destroyed in 40 days. What's the possibility, how, how a city can be destroyed? It's either by a war or by a famine. And at that time, there wasn't any sign of a war coming near them. So most likely there's a famine. So they took the things they depend on and they said, we're going to offer it to God. What's waiting between us and humility is sacrificing what we depend on. And that becomes the door that opens, opens the gates for God to come and work in us. God cannot work in us without self-denial doesn't happen so he's saying all such boasting is evil but there are certain things in the Bible the Bible tells us that we can boast about so what can we boast about look in 2nd Corinthians eleven thirty. it says if I must boast this is St. Paul says if I must boast I will boast on the things which concern my infirmity what is he boasting about that he has diseases he has weaknesses why are you boasting about that? Because these weaknesses show that God is working inside of me. It's not me who's working, but God is working. These weaknesses is constantly reminding me of my true self. So when people meet him, he says, you know, I'm very thankful that I actually have this illness. We also could boast in the work of God and His children. In 2 Corinthians 9, 2 says, For I know your willingness, about which I boast of you in Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. So I could boast about the fact that God is working in His children. 
could sit with people and be like, you don't understand how much God is working. You have not seen how many hearts he changed in China, or India, Korea, Africa, all over the world, he's working. This is a whole new mindset. When somebody buys a new car, all right, they buy it so people can look at it and give them compliments. How many people boast in their, weak, in their weakness? Boast in the fact that God is working. Boast in the cross. Look in Galatians 6.14. He says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Like, why would you boast ever? I boast because I'm a Christian. And God died for me on the cross. And I also crucified myself for the world. Can you imagine this is the mentality that the scripture is wanting us to have? And is to boast in the things that the world would never consider to be any value. In, in James chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Yeah, and the person who's poor, he says, I am poor just like the Lord. I am insulted just like the Lord. I'm treated unjustly just like God. That's where my reward is. That's why St. Paul in Philippians said, For it has, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering has become a gift. I remember I told you this before, one of the Western saints, she said, if the angels are able to envy us, they'll envy us for two things, the Eucharist and suffering. He says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him is a sin. You know, there's something interesting in the scripture that's important to pay attention to. God is so easily he so easily forgives anybody you're sinful come he will forgive you you're far he's going to work with you but there's always an important expectation that you must invest in your talents there's no other way that's why one time Abuna Tadras was telling, telling told me one thing he said the worst sin is when people don't know their goal. So it's happening here. He's saying to him who does not know, to him, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's a sin. People cannot take refuge in the fact that they have done nothing wrong. You can't say I don't do anything wrong. I don't lie. I don't curse. I don't do this. I don't. God says this is not what I'm expecting from you. That if you lie, I'll forgive you. But I'm expecting you to work for the kingdom. I'm expecting you to do good. That's why you have like a couple of parables in the scripture. For example, the parable of the, of the talents. When the servant came and failed to invest. God told him, you wicked servant. Wicked. Be careful because every gift that God has given us 
is a responsibility for his kingdom. So I cannot take it and do nothing. That's the worst thing ever. They're also the example of the ten virgins. They have lacked what? Labor of love. God gives you a chance to show that you're a Christian and you hide it. My friend asked me, why are you fasting and I'm embarrassed? Someone needs help and I can help them and I'm lazy. A lot of things we can do that can make us kind of not use our talents. And God comes and says, you knew better. What is your purpose? What's your goal? What are you working for? The worst thing you can do is to do nothing. If you do nothing, God will come and judge you. St. James in chapter 5, he will continue to address the problem of richness and pride because they are extremely connected. The more people have money and power and authority and all that stuff, the more they become oppressors, the more they don't care, the more they belittle people, the more they respect people, the more they don't depend on God. So he will continue to deal with the same problem. He says, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Usually in the scripture describes the rich, it's really focused on unrighteousness rich. And here, St. James is using the language of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 15, 3, it says, In their streets, they will clothe themselves with that cloth on the tops of their houses and in their streets. This is the life they will live for those people who lived according to their own richness and did not humble themselves in front of God. You know, one of the parables that always scares me is the parable of the rich man. He tells God, what can I do? And God tells him, sell everything. And we hear this parable almost all the time. And can I sell everything? Can I leave everything and follow? In Luke chapter 12, our Lord speaks about the rich fool. You know, think about the rich fool, the rich man. Everybody in the world knew him by name. They probably give him many titles. They probably, he has, probably has many buildings. Has his own tower, has his own restaurants, has his own golf course, has all these things. But heaven knew him as a fool, as an idiot. Because he depended much on his own richness. Be careful because the problem of belittling those who are in need is a problem that is eternal from the very beginning of humanity. Those who have, have become oppressors. Even in the history of Israel, the rich have, have oppressed the poor. 
And we are in the West considered to be rich. We are in the, in the West considered to be the richest people in the world. So we have an obligation to help. And sometimes people feel like what I have, other people should not have. I see it sometimes when people try to help the poor, be like, oh, why do they need to have that? Well, you have it. Are they less of a human than you and me? That's why our Lord said on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mountain, children, how hard it is for those who trust in richness to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom. I want to just relate, bring this message home. How much you trust that your education is the source of security versus how much you trust that God is the source of security. Not by words, by your action. How much you spend time mainly focusing on your education and career, and how much time you spend focusing on your relationship with God. That's the reality. The reality is most of us, if not all of us, depend on richness. Trust in richness, trust in my education, in my career, much more than I ever trust in God. That is the reality. The message that St. James keeps repeating is something that hits home every day in our life. So what is the solution? The first one, he'll ask them to repent. You have to repent. How do I repent? By offering the thing that I'm depending on to God. If I continue to hold on that richness and think that I'm going to come to God another way, there'll be no way. Repentance at the end of the day, it's me learning to tell myself, no. I will not let myself control my life. No, I'm not going to eat whenever you want me to eat. I'm not going to sleep whenever you want me to sleep. I'm not going to trust in this richness. There must be repentance. That's why, by the way, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit that sometimes people forget is self-control. Once you practice so much self-control, God grants you a gift of self-control. He says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. It's unbelievable. Look what is St. James saying. He's telling them, it's just that what he, by the way, in the, old, in the old days, richness did not mean money in the bank. It meant you had gold, you had silver, you have clothes that you're hiding. That's kind of the way that you would count your richness. So what is he telling them? He's telling them, you know, that the gold and silver, which do not rust and do not corrode, they will corrode. They will rust. How? Because when the end of time happens, God will show you that these things were rubbish. 
They stink. They smell bad. That's what you're depending on. You're supposed to save them for heaven and you allowed them, you allowed yourself to depend on them and you will watch them decay. And by the way, this is quite common when, uh, if you guys all obviously know this, when they will interview people at the end of the life. And they'd be like, what are your regrets? Most people will say, I wish I had spent less time in my career and more time with the people I love. Eat your flesh like fire. This, by the way, was a judgment that God had in the book of Judith. Uh, verses, uh, chapter 16, verse 17 says, Woe to the nation that rise up against my people. The Lord Almighty will take vengeance on them in the day of judgment. He will send fire and worms into their flesh. They shall weep in, the, in their in pain forever. The same judgment that is against the nation that will attack God's people are the judgment for those people who depend on their own richness, not on God's. This is for us. This is not for Bill Gates or Elon Musk. No, no, no. This is for us because there's a sense of dependence on our careers and our finances almost it's beyond imagination the amount of time we invest in our careers if it's the amount of time we spend with God that's why our Lord says do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal some parents will say we're working very, very hard so we can leave our children properties. When I die, my children aren't going to need anything. And most of the time, their children grow immoral, far away from God. And they waste their properties in no time. Some people, and in in, in sometimes you see this, they buy a really, really, really big house for a very, very small family. And then what happens? The family loses its communication. The child has his own basement, the girl has her own suite, the other, they don't see each other. I completely feel very disappointed when a parent say, I do not like not to give my child anything they want. Whatever the child wants, they give them. I don't want them to feel they are deprived of anything. What a terrible parenting lifestyle. Terrible. A parent will buy a very, very expensive car for the child knowing that they were raised with the car, knowing that they will show off to the girls, knowing that this car will cause problems. Still, God says, these things will judge you. People are willing to sacrifice their own morals so they can lie to the government and get money that does not belong to them. How many people would lie so they can get unemployment money or benefits that does not belong to them. 
God says you're laying for yourself up treasure out of evil. These are things that we practice often. He says, indeed the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reaper have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. What's the second problem? The second problem is that they defrauded the workers of their pay. It was actually historically known in the first century Palestine, before like 70 AD. It witnessed a lot of increasing concentration of lands in the hands of a small group of people. But as a result, you had a small holdings of many of the farmers were assimilated into these larger estates. And the farmers were forced to earn their living by hiring themselves into these rich landlords. So you have these rich landlords that control everything and they can actually delay the payment or use the salary as a way of privilege over the workers. By the way, it's a similarly, similarly in delaying paying tithe. There's a commandment in the scripture that says, do not delay helping the poor. So if I have, I have my own money that I should pay to the poor, that God requires me to do it, and I don't do it, I am disobeying the commandments of God. Delay, not, not to pay it, even if you delay. And Deuteronomy 24, 14 to 15 says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brethren or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his hire on the day he earns it, before the sun goes down. For he is poor and sits his heart upon it, lest he cry against you to the Lord. And it is sin in you. And it be sin in you. See what God says? Somebody works, you should give him his money by the end of the day. Those people are poor. They need help. What happens if you don't pay on time his salary? He will cry to me. And if he cries to me, it will be a sin against you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how we as people can defraud other people? I, I was sharing the story with some, some of the youth the other day. A while ago, I think maybe two or three years ago, I, I took my wife and we went to Applebee's next to the church to have lunch. And once the, the waiter knew that I am from the church, I have heard grievance from them. Father, people, the kids come Friday night, they don't pay the bill and leave. They don't leave tips. These waiters and waitresses get paid under wage, right? And they make more money, they make most of their money by tips. And people leave them nothing. And who are these people? The church next to the restaurant. Isn't this defrauding workers of their pay? Isn't this a direct violation 
before God is telling us. These waiters and waitresses, a lot of them can live by, live by paycheck to paycheck. But it's actually we as Christians are, are commanded to be generous. People go and have a lot of money and they have no problem wasting money on ridiculous stuff. But when they go with a waiter or a waitress, they're, they're stingy. They don't want to offer them something that would, would help them out and make their day. One of the things I really feel like goes along this, when you meet people and be like, Abuna, I worked really, really hard for my career to become a doctor or to become a dentist or to become a pharmacist or to become blah, blah, blah. I deserve what I have. People did not work as hard as I did. So they don't deserve what they have. That's the most selfish, arrogant statements you can make. Who has given you the chance even to be in this country to make that much money? People who have the same education as you or worked maybe probably 50 times harder than you, they don't, they don't even earn a fraction of what you earn here. But God is saying, you are depriving people from their wages. And by the way, he uses the same expression that happened when Cain killed Abel in the book of Genesis. He told him, the blood of your brother crying out. The tears of those who are oppressed and poor are crying out. We are obligated to help the poor. I don't want to say even more, but if you would allow me to say, part of our salvation dependent on helping the poor. You can take this concept of richness and poverty to different aspects in life, including the knowledge of God, including the knowledge of the scripture. If I have richness in something and I don't share it with those who need, those who are poor, don't I, don't, does it, doesn't this, uh, isn't this defrauding people from what I should give them? So God is saying here, be careful, because we all fall under that category. Look in verse 5, it says, You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your heart as in the day of the slaughter. The third accusation, that you pursue a, luxuri a luxurious lifestyle. What is a luxurious lifestyle? I don't want any type of clothes has to be the best brand name. I don't want any type of perfume. I, have, I want the best perfume. I have to go to a very special store to buy the best perfume. It's more, I've shared this with you before, more like people when they get rich, they no longer care about the, the immediate pleasure, they care about what we call secondary pleasure. Like it's not about the meal, it's not about how good the, the steak tastes, it's about how the steak was presented to me. 
So it becomes more of a pleasure and luxurious life. So when you're, when, you're, when you're seeking a luxurious lifestyle, when you're making a decision based on luxury, you are preparing yourself for the day of the slaughter. Flat out. Flat out. This culture that we live in makes us seek luxury almost in every part of our life. It's in our bloodstream. So it becomes important because he's talking about an image. Somebody, he's doing luxury and this luxury making them fat and fat and fat and fat and overweight until the day of judgment where God will judge them. Because what they have taken so much luxury in their life that they fill up themselves with judgment. Too much comfort in our life, too much luxury in our life, all what it does, it feeds into our selfishness, which is the core of our sins. He says, so what's the consequence of this luxurious life? He says, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. So what happens is when you live a luxurious life, you start condemning people. Oh, this is, this people, this just people are stupid. People just don't know what they're doing. I am Mr. You know, have, have it all put together. So it becomes easier to condemn people. And he says, you murder the just. Like if somebody comes and tells you, this is not right. Oh, he's just jealous. Oh, he just can't do what I'm doing. That's why he's, he's doing this. That's why one of the saints is saying, human injustice are viewed in the light of the injustice done to the righteous man, Christ himself. You want to see the real injustice? This is exactly what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. So the final accusation that St. James is putting in front of people is that once you become rich, unrighteously rich, what happens is, is that you start defrauding people from their pay, defrauding the poor from the money that God has entrusted you. You start murdering people, condemning the righteous. You start seeking a luxurious life. This is something that is so close to us here in the West. This is not far from us. Now, St. James is going to turn to not the rich, but the people who are struggling. Because the people who are struggling are struggling with a couple of things. They're struggling with being patient, but also feeling bad for themselves because they feel like they don't have anything. So, St. James is going to take Psalm 37, which is a song of encouragement directed to the righteous. And he's kind of, kind of implemented into the next few verses. And in this psalm, by the way, I'm going to just give you three kind of key parts because it helps us in the next uh, verses. He describes the poor and the needy. He describes the suffering of the poor and the needy at the hands of the wicked. He says, the wicked have drawn sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. So the fact that 
people decide not to help the poor and the needy, it's almost a decision to slaughter them, it's a decision to kill them. You know, it's quite, quite interesting how God makes us depend on each other so much. And in many situations, I don't want to say in all situations, but in many situations there's no plan B. Whatever you don't do, nobody else would do. God telling you, I trust you fully, and nobody else. The day I deprive those who need is the day I'm taking, I'm slaughtering them. And then he's talking more about the struggle that the poor goes through. They want to be patient, but also part of them are struggling that they don't have. He says, do not fret because of evil doers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. This is Psalm 37. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Because in the Psalm, David is telling people, do not be jealous, do not be upset when you see people who are unrighteous being successful. He actually encourages people to be still before the Lord. He's telling him, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native grain tree, yet he passed away and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. This is what David the prophet is doing to tell people who are struggling. He's telling them, wait for the Lord. You know, here is the thing. A poor person, all what he has to do is to be joyful in his circumstances. A rich person is required to overcome themselves, to repent, to change their heart, and to learn to give generously, joyfully. And then to be honest with you, in many places in the world, like when we go to Africa, Egypt, a lot of these places you find people who are poor are happy. They are doing what they need to do. Then verse seven, he says, therefore be patient brethren until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the later rain. It says, waiting patiently for coming of the Lord. The word coming of the Lord has a technical term called parousia. This is the term that the early church have used for the returning of the Lord. St. Cyril of Alexandria says, the return of Christ was a constant hope in the early church where there is a strong conviction that they were living in the last days before the end. To those who were suffering, the wait seemed inevitable, but it was important to develop a proper sense of perspective. The example of patience of Job and of the Old Testament, the prophet was held out to Christians as a proof that they were hoping for what eventually come, and that when it finally arrived, the wait should seem like no time at all. So the early church, this is the mindset they lived in, that God is coming soon, God is coming soon, God is coming soon. What does this do? Justice will be fulfilled soon. 
When the kingdom comes, justice will be fulfilled. Those who don't understand the purpose of God, they will understand. The poor will be rich, the rich will be poor. This is what happened in the parable of the Lazarus and the rich. And now here, St. James gives us an example of the experienced farmer. What happens quite often, experienced farmer will see two types of rain. When he farms, there's a lot of early rain that comes. So then the plants start sprouting. If you don't have enough experience, what will happen? You're going to start trying to grab the fruit. There's not a lot of fruit yet. So an experienced farmer will wait for the later rain. What does that mean? Be careful, because this is important in our life. In our spiritual life, there's early grace that comes. Once you start getting to know God, once you go to a mission trip, once you go to a monastery trip, there's a lot of grace that comes. Showers you, showers you, showers you. And you're able to pray and to praise and to cry and to repent and to rejoice and to serve. And all feels like a joyful journey of love. But then the rain stops. I no more can serve and dance and pray. Everything seems very difficult. What's happening during that time? The plant is growing, but I can't see it. And I can't see the rain, I can't see the hope, I can't see the grace. Until the later rain comes, that patience, that perseverance that I have, the door that makes me wait for that later rain. This experience could happen even on a shorter scheme in prayer. You start your prayer, you're struggling, you're having a hard time, you can't focus, you can't, you're distracted, you keep fighting, 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 offering matanias, asking God, asking, begging, humbling yourself until the, the later rain comes. And when it comes, it's so beautiful. Why? Because there is a mature fruit that came. The early rain is God hugging you. The later rain is both of you hugging each other. That's the difference. You become so involved with Him. You value Him so much. You hold on Him with so much power. That's what makes the later rain much more important. Both are needed in the spiritual life. Early on, we need the encouragement. Later on, we need to see the full fruit of patience and perseverance. If you are poor in an area in your life, God is inviting you to wait. How should I wait? Wait as somebody waiting confidently with a lot of faith. There's no doubt for a fruit. You also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Again, I was telling you the early Christian had this concept that the coming of Jesus is coming back soon. Coming back soon. Coming back soon. This mindset made them that nothing, cannot, nothing can shake them quickly. I know that the Lord is coming. He's my framer. He knows me. 
The patient that St. James is inviting people to is not a patient of a promise of prosperity on earth. Is a patient even unto death. And who is the perfect example? Our Lord Jesus Christ. When he went to heaven, he had very limited number of followers. All the fruits of the ministry came after he went to heaven. After he came to heaven. He says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says, be patient, establish your heart. Be strong. That's why in the church, by the way, we don't believe in the concept of assistant death. You know, some countries will have something called assistant death. Somebody wants to end their life. They can end their life. People say, I've, you know, I'm done with life. I just want to die. It's almost a suicide, but in a kind of a, you know, a cleaner way. We don't believe in that. Because the commandment is to be patient. The psalmist says in Psalm 102, I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. He actually prayed that God let him finish his purpose. You know, one of the things that really like shook me, I was kind of looking at the book of Daniel. And one of the things that Daniel did was quite interesting. He knew exactly that the end of the 70 year period are coming to end. And God told him at the end of the 70 years, people will go back to Jerusalem. It's done, it's a prophecy, it's done. God gave him the time, everything is clear. But what happened? Daniel, as the 70 years are coming to an end, he prays to God, prays to God. Please forgive, please, O oh Lord, Continue your plans. He's asking God to fulfill the plans that he had for him, for Israel. When do I want to die? Is the day that God wants to take me. Not earlier, not after it. How do I want to die? By fulfilling the purpose that God had for me. As simple as that. He says, do not grumble against one, one another, my brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Obviously, when people are poor and under difficult circumstances, grumbling becomes an issue. People start, for example, of like, you know, like, for example, you're, you, check out, you, check, you check in with your friends and you see that you failed an exam and all your friends did well. So what's going to happen? You're going to feel like I'm poor in an area. You start grumbling. You give yourself your excuses. I did not do well because, you know, my aunt died five years ago. And my dad had a cough. And, you know, you start coming up with these ridiculous excuses that have nothing to do with why you were failing. All right? You start blaming others for your circumstances. You start feeling self-pity for yourself. So difficult circumstances quite often make people grumble. And the commandment is do not grumble. When you sit to an expert, with somebody next to you and you start complaining, complaining, complaining. This is a violation of the commandments of God. 
stop grumbling. Why? Lest you be condemned. You keep finding excuses and complaining and blaming everybody, you will be condemned. And God patient with you. He knows that you're failing. He knows that you were lazy. He knows that you did not put a lot of effort. He knows all this stuff. You don't have to, you know, try to become righteous when, when, and you know the truth. Then you will condemn yourself. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge, God, is watching everything. If God is watching everything and God knows everything, there is no place for me to judge. There is no place for me to blame things on the circumstances. There is no place for me to say, this happened because, or I wish I had, or if I had different parents, if I had different siblings. This becomes a problem. The judge is standing at the door. Be honest. Be real. Be genuine. Be authentic. The judge standing at the door. He's so close. He's not far. And he knows. We'll stop here and next time St. James is going to give us some practical examples of people who live the life of perseverance so that we can learn from them. And then the last part of the chapter, chapter 5, is a lot of practical uh, commandments that are extremely tied to the sacraments of the church. So we'll go through them because they are quite important for the life, the sacramental life in the church and glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.